Chichimangas. No, not Chichimangas. What is it? Chimichangas. Charlie Chase Chichimangas. I'm trying to get too many chizzes. Charlie Chase Chichimangas. No, not Chichimangas. Chimichangas. Charlie Chase Chimichangas all the way to Chicago. How did that work? Not too popping, eh? Chichimanga? Chimichangas. Hola, so that's probably a bit, bit too high, isn't it? Yep, that's probably good. So, welcome back. So you have a different way to continue practicing today with those of you who had your adventure. Lasso, um, this afternoon, then we'll venture into the fourth of the four measurables. As I was reflecting on it this afternoon, what really, really struck me is that in order to, for that quality of awareness, and it's really quite extraordinary, quite sublime, uh, to really flower in one mind stream, my sense of it is I think it's not I think it's not possible. I think it's impossible. Insofar as we really don't have a sense of our own inner resources. Insofar as we're not really experiencing our own genuine happiness. If we're really feeling inwardly empty, no inner resources, I've got nothing here, there's just no happiness inside at all, how can I possibly have equanimity towards others? I don't think it's possible. Maybe that's just my limited imagination, but I don't think so. I think almost certainly since the drive for finding happiness, the drive for security, the drive for to be free of suffering is just relentless. It just goes on and on, no matter what. We want to be free of suffering, we want to find happiness, and we, if we just don't find anything here, anything within, then we will look outside. Where else? Where else are we going to go? And we will look out who out there can make me happy. And when we have an engagement with somebody, a conversation or what have you, and we find some pleasure arising, finally, like finding a little cup of water in a desert, this person's making me happy. Oh, let, let's, let's, here's some flowers. Let's see, can I see you again? You know, anything, chocolate. What can I give you? Money, I'll pay you money, but I've got to see you again. Because you're desperate to find some happiness. So it struck me that as on a, as a, a macrocosmic level, if you have a country that has an enormous appetite for, let's say, fossil fuels, and just doesn't have enough internally, in terms of internal resources within its own boundaries, simply does not have enough fossil fuels to fuel all your industry, then that country will necessarily engage with other countries in an I-it relationship, specifically those that have oil. I don't see any alternative. And we, 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 such a country, we, they, whoever it may be, may supply foreign aid, may be doing all kinds of things, but it's basically, I don't have enough, you have what I want, let's talk, you know? And then if you don't get it, if you don't get it, then you do what's necessary. You go to war to get it. You'll do anything to get it because you don't have the internal resources. So I think we know of some cases where this has happened in history, many, not just recent, you know, over the last 10, 15 years. But we take it right back to ourselves. And I think if we then envision, I've been looking at the negative side of just not having the experience, not having the, the confidence that we in fact do have these inner resources. But now let's flip over to the other side and imagine that type of awareness arising. 
of course, that awareness arising through experience and finding that a sense of well-being, a sense of, of lightness, of buoyancy, of well-being, arises and it's flowing from inside, then when you encounter other people, number one, it just it becomes more and more intuitively, intuitively obvious the more we progress along the path that other people are in fact not the source of our own happiness. They may catalyze it. They may be wonderful people. The relationship may be an, an enormously wonderful, meaningful relationship. It's not to say anything against that, but other people are not the source of our happiness. I know the brother of one person. I want to keep this utterly vague, but I know the brother of one person and the, the other person, not, not the brother, but the other person, remarkable individual, extraordinary individual. Brother, chronic depression. So one would think, oh, but you're the brother of this wonderful person. How can you be depressed? Well, because the other person can't just give you his happiness. There are cases where a married couple, where one, you know, you may have just the most wonderful spouse on the planet, and the other person is depressed. You say, hey, you shouldn't be happy. You shouldn't be unhappy. You've got, you've got the most marvelous spouse, you know, you can imagine. Be happy. Not necessarily. So the more there is that sense of genuine happiness within, I think it just kind of takes the, the shutters off the eyes that we can simply attend to people for who they are, see people as people. It's almost like becoming lucid with respect to people and recognizing people as people, you know, as sentient beings like ourselves, three-dimensional. Three-dimensional, not simply attractive appearances, unattractive appearances, and so forth. So the theme, I don't want to go on and on, the theme for our meditation this afternoon will be equanimity, this impartiality, the evenness of the heart. But what I'd really like to focus on uh, is the reality of impermanence. There's a very powerful tendency, and this is both so core to the Buddhist teachings, of grasping onto that which is by nature impermanent as being permanent. That which by nature always in a state of flux as being stable. That which, which, which will absolutely, definitely come to an end as being indefinitely, you know, it'll carry on and on and on. Source of enormous amount of suffering, a fundamental delusion. But, whether, but this attitude comes in very strongly in our attachments for other people, where we feel this person, you know, somebody who really makes me happy, and not sensitive to the ever-going flux, the ongoing flux, the ever-changing nature of the person, the actual person, and not attending to the impermanence of the current relationship, not attending to the, uh, to the impermanence of life itself. And likewise, when we lock onto another person that we just don't like, we can't stand them, then again, become oblivious of the flux that is that person's reality, oblivious of the transient nature of this particular phase of a relationship, and oblivious of simply the reality of death. So this realization, as we dwell in it, realize it and dwell in it, the realization of subtle and coarse impermanence is a great equalizer. It doesn't make us flat. It does not make us, unless we just go do it wrong, it doesn't make us emotionally dead. It doesn't make us un uncaring, very much to the contrary. Final point is that this is something from Buddhist philosophy, but again, it strikes me as having such a zing of experience and insight to it. And it comes from, we learn it in, back in Dura, when we're studying the basic text, Dunchi, that our concepts, our images, our ideas of people, and it's people, it could be, if you're an American, What's the Republican Party like? How would you characterize that? 
and whatever you say is probably what you would have said yesterday and probably what you would have said six months ago. Static. How about George Bush? What kind of a person is he? What do you think of Obama? What do you think of Hillary Clinton? What, what, what kind of a woman is she? I'm speaking from American politics. Whatever comes up, I'll bet you it was the same yesterday and probably the same two weeks ago, that our ideas about people, places, situations, ideologies, communism, Ku Klux Klan, etc., etc., locked. They're static. Whereas the referent is always in a state of flux. So as soon as we conflate the idea with the reality, we've just become deluded. We become unhinged from reality. So let's go to equanimity, try to get some mileage, get some real juice out of the insights that are here. Buddha declared that the mind that is settled in equanimity or in equipoise comes to know reality as it is. A mind that is balanced. A heart that is balanced. Let's first of all settle the body in its natural state, a state of balance. One of stillness poised between relaxation and vigilance. Settle your inner speech in its natural state, one of effortless silence. In other words, not compulsively droning on and on, but nor is it forcefully suppressed to extremes. Settle your inner voice, the inner commentary, in effortless silence. And the key to doing so is to settle your respiration in its natural rhythm. Not forced, not effortful, but also not restrained or constrained, inhibited. Balance, equilibrium.
and settle your mind in its ground state, its natural state, again one of balance, poised between being very loose and relaxed on the one hand, vigilant, clear, luminous on the other, and the balance sustained with stillness, with stability. You may cultivate this with mindfulness of breathing for a little while. the great challenge of the meditative cultivation of loving-kindness and of compassion is to filter out 
the self-centered attachment. The caring, the affection, the love for others may be genuine, truly heartfelt. But in so many cases, it's always an alloy. It is mixed with self-centered attachment. This person makes me happy. This person is important for my well-being. This this person disappoints me. I have expectations of this person. I hope this person does this, doesn't do that, for my sake. It's a subtle challenge to filter out the attachment and leave the loving-kindness. To filter out the attachment and leave the compassion. It is simply filtering out the sense of I am and seeing others as they are. Bring to mind now a person towards whom you do feel attachment. If this person were to leave your life, to die, to move away, to withdraw from you deliberately, no longer want to have a relationship with you, insofar as there's attachment, There'll be sadness, grief. Bring to mind a person for whom there's strong attachment. And dwell on the qualities that make this person so likable, so attractive, so endearing, so important for your happiness. Simply put, love and loving-kindness attends to sentient beings, human beings, subjects like ourselves. Attachment attends to appearances, objects. As you hold this person in mind, as if zooming backwards to a wide angle, a temporal wide angle. Was there a time when you didn't know this person? Perhaps not if it's a mother or a father, at least within this lifetime. But otherwise, was there a time when you did not know this person? A time when this strong attachment, this strong connection and bond was not present? 
the person was not always so important to you, not always an object of attachment. And then attend to the future. Wherever there is a meeting, there will eventually be a parting. There are no exceptions. There will come a time when this person is no longer manifestly a part of your life, perhaps only as a memory, but not a person. Relationships change, people change, and life itself comes to an end. All that is acquired will be lost. As you attend once again to this person in the present, the lovable, the attractive, the endearing qualities, attend to the reality that this person is changing moment by moment. If this person should watch his or her own mind, as many of you, as all of you have, in settling the mind in its natural state, you'd see this effervescent, ever-changing, cascading flow of one mental event, memory, desire, thought after another, nothing stable, nothing enduring, Outer appearances change, speech changes, behavior changes. The actual person in a constant state of flux. Sometimes attractive, sometimes not attractive. Not intrinsically an object of attachment and not the source of our own happiness. Never. penetrating through the veil of appearances, the attractive appearances, the memories of the kindness, the happiness this person may have brought you in the past. Penetrate through to the individual who, like yourself, constantly does experience something, and that is the yearning for happiness, the wish to be free of suffering. Attend to this ever-flowing reality of this other person like yourself. With his or her own hopes and fears, joys and sorrows, 
good days and bad days. For just a little while, for just a little while, practice Donglen. As you breathe out, breathe out this light from your heart with a selfless desire, the aspiration, the yearning. May you find the happiness that you seek. May you cultivate the causes of the well-being and fulfillment that is your heart's desire. May you be well and happy with each out-breath. This person, like each of us here, wishes to be free of suffering, free of fear and danger, free of insecurity. With each in-breath, arouse the compassionate yearning. May you, like myself, be free of suffering, free of the causes of suffering. May you find peace. Let the appearance of this person fade back into the space of your mind. And bring to mind now someone who's been very troublesome for you, really created disturbance, perhaps out of delusion, perhaps out of greed and selfishness, out of arrogance, perhaps out of malice, hostility, aggression. Even bringing this person to mind may be a bit painful. You wish they'd just go away. What is it that is so disagreeable about this person? Is it character traits? Is it behavior? Temperament? Maybe all of the above? 
reflect upon these disagreeable qualities that make this person so repellent. Shantideva reminds us that there are character traits. There are people who, by nature, not their essential nature, but by temperament. Some people are very hot-tempered. Some people selfish. Some people quite aggressive. Some loud and overbearing. Some manipulative. Some quite habitually dishonest. It has nothing to do with us. It's a character trait. It's a habit. Shantideva reminds us, why be upset? You put your fire, your hand into fire, it's hot. It's by nature hot. Don't be upset. Fire's hot. It burns. No reason to be upset about other people's temperament. On the other hand, sometimes people behave in very disagreeable, very inappropriate ways, harmful ways, but uncharacteristic of their temperament. Flares up. And then it's gone. Back to normal. And Shantideva reminds us, why be upset? It was just a flash. It was a passing occurrence, transient. No reason to be upset. Stand back and take the larger view. Was this person always disagreeable from childhood on? Has this person always been a thorn in your side? An apparent source of pain and distress? Has it always been so? Not likely. As we attend to the future, there will inevitably come a time where this person departs, the relationship grows thin, becomes a memory. Death will come sooner or later. It will be over.
And finally, as we bring these stereotypes, these images, these memories, these ruminations to mind, we play the same videos over and over again, the same slides, the same memories, static. No person is static, as we all know so well from the meditation itself, constantly in a state of flux, all of us. This person undoubtedly does not always have an afflicted mind, does not always manifest harmful behavior, always in a state of flux. And we come back to the simple truth, what is constant? What is true yesterday and tomorrow, ten years ago and ten years from now? This person constantly, like ourselves, wishes to find happiness. Peace of mind. Freedom from fear and suffering. Breathe in and breathe out as you attend to this person who essentially at the deeper level is so much like yourself. The difference is being on the surface. May you like myself be well and happy. May you like myself be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. with each in and out breath. Imagine the mental afflictions from which this person suffers, as we ourselves suffer from our own afflictions. Imagine these afflictions subsiding, the resultant behavior vanishing, and all that was disagreeable about this person in temperament and in behavior gone history.
Allow the appearance of this person to fade back into the space of the mind. And for just a short while, expand the field of your awareness in all directions. Attending to the reality that all those around us are in the center of their own world. Everyone around us has his or her own hopes and fears, joys and sorrows, wishes to be free of suffering and to find happiness as we do, all without distinction. Breathe in, breathe out. May all beings like ourselves be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. May each one find the happiness, the fulfillment, the joy that each one seeks. and let all appearances fade back into the space of the mind. And for just a moment, let your awareness rest in its own nature. Let's bring the session to a close. Hola, so. 
on a purely technical level, it seems like the problem solved, isn't it? Then we have David to thank for all of this. David, thank you. Thank you. He did it. He, he sent me an email today. It was something like, you know, when I put the headphone on, put a sock in it. But it wasn't a sock in it, right? It was a sock on it. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Qu quit, quit here? A miniature sock, so not a big one like, ah. Oh. Good. Equanimity is a big deal. And I hope it becomes more and more obvious, like just like 2020 vision, perfectly obvious, that all that is contrary to the four immeasurables is, delude, is rooted in delusion. <laughs> it really is, right? When we don't attend to others with loving kindness, there's something wrong. We're not getting it right. We're misapprehending reality. That's why loving kindness is blocked. When we don't attend to others with compassion, it's something blocked. It's delusion. And so obvious when it comes to um, equanimity. The fact that we can't, that it's hard to maintain that equalness, that evenness of heart. It's because we got it wrong, because we misapprehend the nature of reality. And so wisdom is utterly saturating these practices. And when it goes to its, if we take this practice, this equanimity, this evenness, to its primordial heights or depths, as you wish, to its, to its end, that's where we come to these statements as in the Great Perfection. Even purity, the one taste, the one taste, no difference. And a number of you I know have had, had the good fortune, as I have, to have encountered really wonderfully mature, I mean, realized beings with very deep insight. I mean, really great lamas. So, I don't even need to, need to give any names, but I, when you watch their behavior, and you watch how they engage with different types of people, and different types of circumstances, you find an evenness there. Disagreeable people come in, it's even. Lovely people come in, friendly, gracious, so adoring, and so, you know, oh, you know, just really, just full of gratitude, even, even. Real sign of maturity. I, mean, I think it was Gisha Dapton, quite sure. He, he said, you want a litmus test, some kind of a test, how's your practice going? Just watch that one as you engage with different, different types of people, different situations and so forth. To what extent does the, when we engage with a disagreeable person, is it just dislike, aversion, oh, you're so disagreeable, I can't stand you, uh, uh, uh. Is it that, or is the other response, which is equally, you know, attending to the reality, is compassion, you know. But he said, watch. Watch the extent to which attachment arises, to which just, you know, aversion, disgust, contempt, dislike arises. That will be your thermometer. How's your overall practice doing? How's it going? So, very practical. Hola, so we'll start with the first note. I remember a very silly joke that somebody made. The only time I was wrong was once when I thought I was wrong, but I wasn't. Well, I was wrong, what was it, this morning? Yesterday. I was wrong yesterday in thinking that I was wrong. <laughs> This is from Noah. Thank you, Noah. Uh, Noah is our researcher here, and he cited some, a, a book or a paper by Stephen LeBerge himself saying, Get, getting up an hour early, staying awake for one hour, or reading more about lucid dreaming, and so forth. And so, in fact, the reference to one hour, getting up one hour early in the Attention Revolution wasn't incorrect. It was straight from Stephen LeBerge's own writings. At the same time, um, I think what happened here... So, thank you, Noah. That's very helpful. 
and made because I really like to avoid big typos like that, and it kind of made me feel uneasy. Like, how did I let that, that one slip by? I think what what the, what is the case here, though? I mean, he said it. He's basing this on research. He didn't make that one up. Uh, but he and I, as I've mentioned, we've done we've co-led six ten-day workshops by now. So I've heard his I've heard his his teachings six times because they're the same teachings pretty much every time. And I'm really quite positive that in the oral transmission, there's the written transmission. In the oral transmission, uh, then and and of course what we're doing, we're often we're out in Hawaii on the Big Island in this idyllic setting. That's really quite quite similar to this, except for not as nice. Uh, it's still very, very nice there. But people have nothing to do for 10 days. I mean, really nothing to do except for sleep. <laughs> so we don't even have the morning session until about 11 o'clock in the morning because he wants people to just sleep in as much as you possibly can. Squeeze in a little bit more because those final hours before you wake up, they're the best ones. So no morning sessions. And then what do we do in the evenings? I mean, they're really cushy retreats. Really, cushy means like, not macho. The last thing we do in the evening is we watch movies. We watch a movie. A movie that, bring, that has a surreal quality to it, that makes you question the nature of reality. You know, get, sets, you know has, has surprises in it to set you up for recognizing anomalies, you know. And so, there's, since there's nothing else to do, you don't, you, know, you don't go to work, you don't even have to cook your own meals and so forth, then in that type of setting, getting up three hours before you'd normally wake up is no problem at all. You don't even have to get up until 10. You know, and breakfast is served until 10 o'clock in the morning. So, you know, so if you normally wake up at 7, get up at 4, stay awake at least a half an hour, 45 minutes in his tradition, which is a great tradition. Read one of his books on lucid dreaming, read something about it, dream yoga, whatever, engage with it, and then go back to sleep for a couple of hours. As much as you can, just sleep and sleep and sleep, you know, and don't set an alarm clock because there's nothing else to do. I mean, you, you wake up and then, you know, you have breakfast, swim. You know, it's pretty, pretty low intensity. But people do have lucid dreams. So when I say low intensity, it's not, you know, sarcasm, anything like that. It's just a very relaxed retreat, all emphasis on daytime lucid dream practice and then nighttime. So in that kind of context, when you really have no other demands on your time at all, then it's no big deal to, you know, go ahead and set the alarm for three hours before you'd wake up, stay awake for 45 minutes, maybe it takes you 15 minutes to get to sleep, you still got two hours of sleep time coming, prime time. Now, if you're back home and you have a regular job and you have many demands on your time, in, the, in midweek, like on Wednesday, setting your clock three hours before you'd wake up, you're probably going to ruin your day. You probably won't get enough sleep. So it's not so practical and that's, that's perhaps why he gave the other transmission for people who are not in retreat. Just get up an hour or so earlier. So since we're talking briefly about uh, lucid dreaming, let's just go there. I'll give a few more tips, but I do want to get to these questions. Uh, several of them are very pra practical, some theoretical, which I don't want to entirely ignore. Um, it's very easy to get very frustrated and feel, and just give up when it comes to lucid dreaming and dream yoga. Very easy to do. Um, and that is, you hear the teachings, especially the dream yoga teachings. If you've ever received you know, classic dream yoga teachings from you know, some Tibetan Lama or some Dharma teacher, uh, you may try it, try it, and just completely fail and say, well, I guess that's for people who are much further along the path than I am. And then, frankly, dream yoga is often taught that way, that it is for much more advanced people, people, as I said earlier, who are very well progressed in the stage of regeneration, which is high tantric practice. 
Stephen LeBerge's approach, he and Jane Gackenbach and Paul, Paul Tolai, and I'm sure there are a number of other very fine researchers, uh, their approach is, you know, it's not geared for meditators, it's geared for ordinary people. And so what they have done very skillfully, which is a wonderful complement to the very deep and quite challenging practices in dream yoga, is what they've done is we have these little baby steps, little baby steps. So it would be like teaching shamat and say, okay, now, assuming that you can sustain your attention for 45 minutes without break, you know, in a continuous flow of attention, assuming you can do that, uh, here are the teachings on shamat. And we go, wah, wah. And we stare up, you know, four, four flights above us and looking, I wish I were there, but I'm not, and then none of the teachings on shamat work, right? Because it's assuming a higher level that we don't have. So where can you start? Ground floor. In, in dream yoga. <coughs> this gets really practical immediately. And that is, if you can't remember your dreams, then the chances of, of really progressing in lucid dreaming dream yoga are pretty much zero. You might just sporadically have one all by accident or something like that. But really, developing the ability of lucid dreaming when you can't even remember your dreams, almost zero chance. So then if you try it not knowing that, you'll just get frustrated. You know, you fall asleep with a strong resolve, tonight I will remember my dreams, I'll remember my dreams. <laughs> what? <Yeah. You> know. <laughs> oh, I'm awake. Oh, failed again. Failed again. I failed at shamatha, I failed at stiv degeneration, I failed at bodhicitta, I failed at shunyata, and now I failed at one more thing. I'm no good at dream yoga either. <sighs> Just gives you a warm, tingly, tingly quality. And so the first thing is, can you enhance dream recall? How can you do that? Well, by taking an interest in your dreams. And as you fall asleep, then fall asleep, and here's where, where this prospective memory really kicks in, really important. It's equally important in lucid dreaming as in dream yoga methods. Prospective memory, or in Tibetan, pempa, pempa tangukure, pempa tang. And that is, it's, it's a, an anticipatory resolve, okay? As you're falling asleep, so let's take this from baby steps, though, not start where we, we, where we can't start. And that is tonight, the chances that you will dream, so just tonight, tonight, the chances that you will dream are pretty much 100%, I mean, very, very high. And if you have a normal night's sleep and you're a normal person, then you'll probably have five to seven cycles of dreams. The first one will probably start something like 90 minutes after you fall asleep and it'll probably be fairly short. And then you'll slip back into the substrate, 90 minutes later or so, you'll have a second dream. So you'll be like a dolphin coming up and then going down below and up and down below. But the frequency gets slower, so towards the end the dreams get longer. And generally the longer dreams are towards the end of your night's sleep. And so as you fall asleep, then do so with the resolve, tonight I'm going to be dreaming and as, and as soon as I wake up, I'm going to, no, remember, stop. That is, don't move. But I'm going to try to recall what was, the la what was my last memory. And what was the memory just before that? Without moving, because then you won't shake it up, you know, you won't lose the stability. But don't move. That's the first thing. And, it, and if it takes you some, some days before you can get that one hammered in, that when you wake up, you actually don't move, whether it's at 12.30 because you need to wake up and because you need a pee, or whether it's 4 o'clock or 6 o'clock, whenever, but whenever you wake up, don't move. And so it's don't move and then do this, just like with introspection. As soon as you see laxity, recognize laxity and do something. 
So even in introspection, there's prospective memory. Should excitation arise, I will recognize it and I'll do something. Laxity arise, recognize it and do something. Okay, so we're really training in this mode already. And so, and you're looking for something specific in shamatha practice. And likewise, in, we'll stick with lucid dreaming here, you're looking for something specific, and that is the experience of waking up. Recognize it as soon as, as, soon as it begins, as, just like introspection. It is, in fact, an exercise in introspection, monitoring your state of mind. As soon as you start to wake up, don't move, and then retrace. Retrace your memory, go back to your last, your last experience, the preceding moment of consciousness, in a way, and see if you can pick up was there an image? Was there a story? And see if you can say, what happened before that? What happened before that? Even if there's no chance of falling back asleep again, see if you can pick up at least snippets. A snippet means just a little fragment, a little bit. And then if you're really interested, then write it down. The very sheer act of writing it down is almost like a strong message to yourself, I care. This is something I'm investing some time in. I'm placing value on this. And writing it down, then that reinforces it. And then as you're writing it down, you'll remember this, and that's going to reinforce for the next night. So I know a person, oh, one, one monk when I was living in Switzerland, I remember when he started, relatively small dream recall, doing this, we're actually working with a Jungian, a Jungian uh, psychoanalyst, wonderful woman, named Frau Dora Kalf was her name, uh, in Zurich. But she encouraged us to do dream recall. And so this one monk, he started out, and after a while he was, he was, he was recording like five or six dreams a night, each one with a lot of detail. So it is like a bicep. I mean, you use it and it gets bigger. The ability to recall dreams will get bigger. And to write them down can be helpful. Of course, that takes a bit of time. But write down what you can. And so what you're doing is writing a dream journal. Okay? And if, you, if one morning you just don't remember anything, fine. You just write down, don't remember anything at all. Out like a light. So, the idea here is, as I mentioned earlier, I think it was yesterday, look for anomalies. Recognize the anomalies when they arise. What question do you ask? When you see something odd, what do you ask? Oh, you got it. How odd. How odd. Okay? And then what do you do? State check. State check. It can be jumping, so that's a really good one. Really quickly, you can look at printed matter. Put it in your field of vision. Read it. Take it out of your field of vision. Read it again. If you're dreaming, the chances are very high it will not read the same the second time. And if you're waking, the chances are really high it will. So that's a common state check. So that's one way. And developing that habit and then having that habit be so reinforced that at night when you're dreaming, you'll see an anomaly. And almost in every dream, you're going to see something weird, right? Number one, the first weird thing is you're not in your room asleep. That should be kind of weird enough, right? You're going to be someplace else, but you didn't buy an airline ticket to get there. How did you get there? That's odd, right? So look for anomalies. Well, in virtually every dream, there will be anomalies. Develop the habit so when an anomaly happens, you're cruising along on the dream, you see the anomaly, you say, odd, how odd, and then you do a state check. That can be your catalyst into lucidity. There's another way, and this is one I'll mention uh, briefly, and then we'll go to the questions. And that is, these are dream signs. Dream signs. I think a lot of you have read about this in Detention Revolution, in Genuine Happiness, perhaps, and I'll have a book later this year, early next year, a whole book on dream yoga coming out. Lucid Dream and Dream Yoga, putting the two traditions together. So that'll come out. Uh, it'll be published by... Oh, we don't have a publisher yet. It will be published, so I, I'm quite confident. So, 
It's dream science. And dream science, you're able to tease out or sift out by having a dream journal. So just writing down whatever the dream was about, just writing it down. But write down 10 dreams over the period of a week or so, or however, however, however long it takes. Write down 10 dreams, and the chances are you will see some recurring, some, some things that recur. It's, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a spouse, maybe it's, it's being with your spouse, or maybe it's being in a particular place. So, what are dream signs? People you encounter, places you are, activities you're engaged in, situations you find yourself in, and emotions. I'm sure there are other dream signs as well. But people you encounter, places you find yourself in, activities you're involved in, situations you find yourself in, could be the same situation but in a different place, and then emotions. So I'll give you, I rarely have it anymore, but I used to have it quite frequently uh, since I, tr I started traveling on my own at quite a young age into really strange areas like India. Uh, but my dream sign for, for some time, just a recurrent dream, was a dream of traveling. It could be by train, bus, airplane, usually airplane, and something's gone wrong. I somehow show up at the airport and I forgot my passport. Or I'm looking for my ticket, I forgot my ticket. Uh, my plane has been canceled and it's just one, one disaster after another. And I'm freaking, I left my baggage behind. Uh, I was supposed to meet somebody, they're not here. Uh, I have no money at all and I don't speak the language. And I don't know how to use their cell phones. That's always true for me. I never know how to use their cell phones. <laughs> And so that would be a dream sign. So it's, it's places, it's airports and so forth, it's a situation and it's an emotion. Three stacked together, okay? So you write down it and you tease out of your dream journal what are our recurrent people, etc., etc., and remember what they are. And then, just in a 24-hour period, that is, say, waking and dreaming, keep your eye open. Here's, once again, prospective memory. Keep your eye open. So in my case, do I find myself in an airport? If I, if, you know, to use the old, old dream sign. It's like 35, 40-year-old dream sign. Uh, but in my case, oh, I'm in an airport. And I'm a little bit late. Maybe I'm going to miss my flight. Because my, my flight to get to this airport was late. And maybe I won't catch it. Maybe there'll be a domino effect. Maybe there'll be a catastrophe. And so, then pause. This isn't terribly odd, those kind of things happen. But this is a dream, reckoning, ah, this is a dream sign. I wonder if I'm dreaming. Apply the critical, reflective attitude. This, I'm, in a, I'm in an airport and I'm feeling anxious because everything didn't go perfectly. Fancy that. How odd. <laughs> and then recognize it as a dream sign and then do a reality check. If you can find something to read, read it once, turn your way, look back. Three times, if it's the same, same three times, it's about, what was it, 97% chance you're not dreaming. But as I mentioned yesterday, and I'll finish here, um, do not look around to see how realistic things appear. Because dreams can be really real, realistic, and that will just rein, reinforce your non-lucidity. Okay? So there we are. Bear in mind, delusions are always very compelling. <laughs> so, let's go now to some practical questions. Here's first one from Teresa. Uh, when, when all the moods and feelings and all emotions arise, most of the time I'm not able to distinguish what it is, that is exactly what type of mood, feeling, emotion, and so forth, 
sadness, self-contempt, etc., etc. I just feel it must be an affliction because it feels bad. I would pause there, and you know, I think you probably noticed by now. I think, I think precision is really important because when we confuse things, it can really be disastrous. For example, this is a really disastrous one. One may feel, ah, I really want to come overcome attachment, and attachment is real caring a lot about people. I've known people that feeling they really wanted to overcome attachment feel this means dissociate, don't care so much, don't make yourself so vulnerable to suffering, because we know if we really care about people, we suffer a lot, right? Isn't that true? So don't care so much, because caring is attachment. Attachment, I mean, psychologists use the word attachment as in caring, and, and not as a mental affliction, often. Nobody owns language or you know, has a monopoly on defining it. So if one conflates those two, one may think one's practicing Buddhism and all one's actually practicing is aloof indifference, which is the false facsimile of equanimity. So precision is really important. Is it the case, is it the case that if something, and this is very mild, this is not a great disaster, Teresa, but I think here I would want to pause. If it feels bad, it must, it, it, it must be an affliction because it feels bad. Not necessarily. I've seen the Dalai Lama weep a number of times. I don't think he was just always experiencing a mental affliction when that occurred. I've seen him feel, I, well, of course, weeping out of gratitude is something different. I've seen him do that a number of times. But nevertheless, it's, it's weeping. It's not laughing, you know. Um, but feeling bad is not necessarily an indication, not in, the, not in the Mahayana tradition. There was an interesting discussion, I'm not going to go into it, with one very, very fine Theravada scholar. I don't want to go there right now. It's too much of a tangent. But in the Mahayana tradition, if I feel bad because I've been thoughtless or insensitive to someone, I said something that was misinterpreted, another person really, really was very wounded, I feel bad about that. I try to, I feel bad about that. I, I really don't want to harm people. That's kind of a pretty core desire of mine. I would like the notion, I've said only, only half in jest, if, if somebody ever wastes the money to have a tombstone for me, you know, which I think is frankly not a good use of money. But if they wrote on the tombstone, here lies Alan Wallace, he was a pretty harmless guy. I'd be content with that. You know? But in any case, if I've harmed somebody, and then I feel bad afterwards, it's not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. If, especially if it's done out of mental affliction. I was selfish or hostile or impatient. Whatever, you know. We have, temp we have temperament, we have personalities, and it happens. But feeling bad about that is not a mental affliction, right? Uh, there are so many, I mean, what day goes by without hearing one more natural calamity, one more terrorist bombing, one more kidnapping, one more person. Terrible things happened in China recently that really disturbed the whole country of people stabbing like 25 children in a kindergarten. Children. It boggles the imagination. And it happened three or four times over the last two weeks. That brought sadness to, I think, probably hundreds of millions of people in China. It brings sadness to me. How could anybody stab children? Go to a school and stab a whole... How could this happen? How can it happen? You know, it's, it's, that's unbelievable. Just to dwell on that, just... How can that happen? Stabbing children? You know, 
So sad. This is, I think, not a mental affliction. Because I'm not angry at anybody. They're not my children. But how sad that that should happen. So sad. So feeling bad is not necessarily a mental affliction. So, sorry, but I was really quite... That really caught my attention. Stabbing children? You know, as you can see, it has an impact. Let alone all the other catastrophes we have every single day, globally. So are we to distinguish them? Or is just being able to relax, release them, and let them be? Okay, good. A number of things to say on this one. If this is practicing settling the mind in its natural state, there is, it is a, a cluttering of the practice. It is to clutter the practice, to label them. Be it to be settling the mind in its natural state, to observe the space of the mind, and say, anger, irritation, a bit of attachment, that's jealousy, there's compassion, oh, equanimity, thought, memory, anticipation, ah, yeah, yeah, it's all grasping, blah, 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 you know? So that's, that's an abstraction. Don't need to do that. The quality of awareness is discerning, but it's not labeling, right? It doesn't need to go into the, the Rolodex, into our cabinet of, you know, all of our labels, and see, which one is this one? Is this rage or is it simply hostility, you know? In Buddhist psychology, we have different nuances of anger as mental afflictions. Don't need to go there. It is discerning, though. It's clear. It's not blurred. It's not dissociated. It's not vague. It's not spaced out. It's attentive. It's attentive, but it's not labeling. So that's the first point. So hopefully that answers the first part. Um, to relax, of course. Well, that's the essence of this practice, is to relax and be very attentive and vigilant at the same time. Release them, I don't like the word, not here. Because we're not releasing them, what are we doing? Not releasing them, what are we doing? That's true, but what are we doing to them? Letting them be. And settling the mind is natural state. We're not releasing them. We're not releasing them. If you have a caged bird and you release it, you expect the bird to fly away, right? I release the bird. Or one of the things Buddhists will do sometimes is, is uh, they'll go to a, um, a person who sells live fish or live lobster, live crab, and sells them to be, you know, to be eaten. But they're still alive, keep them nice and fresh. And people like their lobsters boiled alive. Apparently they taste better that way. And so sometimes Buddhists will go and purchase fish and other living creatures that are otherwise going to be killed, and then they'll release them They'll go to a bay, they'll go to the ocean, whatever is a good habitat, and release them. But you expect them then to swim away and not just, thank you, you know, and kind of hang out there. And so that's the quality, that's the ambience of release, is they go away, and we release them so that they would go away, right? Whereas if you let be, then you don't expect anything. You don't expect them to come closer, and you don't expect them to go away. You don't expect them to linger, nor do you expect them to disappear. You don't expect anything. You just let them be. Okay? Very good, very practical question. Oh, yeah. So there's that one. Um, Here's our three encyclopedic questions. Here's one from Adelina. As usual, more like a, oh, an epistle rather than a question. Detail. It's wonderful. It's excellent. So in the Attention Revolution, page 174, there's a synopsis of the nine stages. In stage five, it is said, there's some resistance to samadhi. In stage six, as to what is achieved, no resistance to training the attention. So in stage five, what do you mean with samadhi? 
I, I think my easy answer would be achieve stage five and see what it's like. And then find what is the referent of the word samadhi. See, you know, see whether the shoe fits. That would be the very practical answer. Just to throw it right, right back to you. Stage five is, is not you know, so terribly inaccessible. Um, but I would say so, but go ahead and give an answer. Samadhi as in the practice. As in the practice. Resistance, that is, there is this ambivalence in stage five. And it can linger somewhat in stage six, especially in the early phases. Bear in mind there's no sharp demarcation. Now good, five is finished. Now we start something totally new. It's just incremental all the way through until you get to shamatha, and that's no longer incremental. That's a discontinuity, right? But when you're on stage five, there is a... Um, there, as with stage four, there's a sense that you really have gotten someplace. You're no longer at the beginning. You're no longer just falling back to ground zero again and again. You're no longer oscillating between two and three, two and three, one, two, three, one, 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 two. Like you know, you're stage five. You'll have a bad day once in a while, but you, you see you're no longer a rank beginner in the practice of shamatha. And that gives some satisfaction, some confidence. Some, yeah, so satisfaction and confidence. At the same time, on stage five, a couple of things are happening. Bear in mind, I'm transitioning from stage four to stage five. What's the... So here's a quiz. Transitioning from stage four to stage five, what level of attentional imbalance has been overcome? Course excitation was gone when? When, when, was course excitation, when was course excitation gone? Stage four. What's gone in transitioning from stage four to five? What are you, what are you now free of? I think it was right. I'd, course laxity, that is correct. Course laxity. That was present there at stage four, and that's really a primary thing to tend to. Medium excitation is still present on stage four and stage five. So the progress in going from stage four to five is more in the heightening of vividness and overcoming coarse laxity. What's it feel like as vividness enhances? You're more sensitive. More sensitive. So I surprised myself a few minutes ago because um, I didn't have that response when I read it about these, these... It was one day and then two days later again and then third day, I think it was three times. And in each case, it was quite a number of children who were killed. They weren't just stabbed, they were killed. I was surprised when I was just speaking here that such strong emotion came up. But we just came out of a meditation. Just came out of a meditation. And when you're in meditation, the mind becomes more sensitive and more vivid. And therefore, when an image comes up, a recollection, my response here, when I'm in front of a whole bunch of people, I don't really, don't, go, don't hear, display really strong emotions, uh, was much stronger than when I read it in the newspaper, on the online newspaper. Well, why? Because when I read it, I think I wasn't just coming out of meditation, I was probably dealing with email or what have you, and here it was right out of meditation. And so when it came up, there was a real vividness to it, the reality of it, of children being stabbed, and somebody doing it methodically, one child after another. And, of course, it just goes to the heart. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of overwhelming. And that's just one little phase, you know, one one event in the seven billion people on the planet. But that one became very real. And so as you're cruising, you're cruising altitude, stage five, you're now accustomed to an unprecedented degree of clarity, which means sensitivity. That means whatever comes up, it's going to come up with a sharper edge, more vivid, more realistic, which means now you're going to have a more subtle time, greater challenge to not fall into grasping because it's more in your face.
as you have that subtlety, you may, on stage five, since again there's no abrupt transition from stage five to stage six, uh, you may already be getting some uh, previews of the type of turbulence and the type of nyam, pretty intense nyam, that are not confined by any means to stage six, but they're really characteristic of stage six, really intense ones, right? Especially if you're settling the mind in its natural state. And it, it may be like, I don't know, hearing a very, very large for forest fire coming your way, or a very large wave, hearing, if you're, if you're inland, you know, by 200, 300 yards, and you hear a tsunami, and you hear it just coming, rumbling in, rumbling in, you say, oh, that rumbling is coming towards me, like that, you know. There can be some resistance. Do I really want to go back? Do I really want to go back? That could be, we could have some very turbulent water coming up real soon here. Some resistance. It's intuitive. Intuitive. So there's one aspect of it, where there could be account for the, the ambivalence. We can also read this directly, though, as samadhi, and not simply the practice of meditation. One of the things that the achievement of the experience of samadhi, this unification of the mind, this profound quieting of the mind, entails uh, as you're approaching the substrate consciousness and getting glimmerings, getting shafts of light from the substrate consciousness, you know, sneak previews of what's the sub substrate consciousness going to be like. Well, the substrate consciousness is a disillusion of your ego, a disillusion of your ordinary sense of identity. I mean, it, it happens every night, so it's nothing to be terrified about. It, every time you fall asleep, every time you fall into the substrate consciousness but in deep sleep, your ego dissolves. When you're deep asleep from your perspective, you're not a man or a woman, you're not Mexican or Dutch or German. You don't have any personal history. Your, your sense of, here I am, has dissolved. And that's every time we fall asleep. But it's shrouded by the fact that we're dull and we're not aware that we just lost our identity. Here, you're falling asleep consciously, in a manner of speaking, and you're aware that you're losing your identity. Now, that can be terrifying. It is, in fact, facing a very strong facsimile of death. You know the end point of the dying process is the substrate consciousness. The end point of shamatha is the substrate consciousness. Sneak preview of coming attractions. You know, what's in store for you? Substrate consciousness. You know? And so there, there can be some premonition of this as well. And one may be disinclined to having a, a, a vivid eyewitness experience of your comfortable sense, your accustomed sense of I am dissolving before your very eyes. That can be somewhat threatening. So there, there are various reasons for the, how do you say, ambivalence. How would you describe these, these, these hmm, how these existences, what are coming from directed at? I think maybe I've answered it, that one, okay. Then part two is, as meditation postures are named traditionally, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, the four classic ones, taught by the Buddha, and in the, what was it, the Vimuttimaga, it classifies those in terms of which ones are good for which temperament types, temperament types, angry and des uh, full of desire and so forth, and you may recall Buddha Gosa says, use whichever is most helpful. So those are the four classic ones. I do enjoy the supine position. I think you're not alone. And in traditional images, I see the reclining Buddha lying down on his side, head supported by the hand. Yes, the lion, the lion posture. 
the, the sleeping lion posture in which he achieved Paranavada, which he falls down for sleep. Uh, something the lying down originally, ah, does the lying down uh, originally also include Shavasana, the corpse position, and also for the Buddha? I don't know to what extent, if at all, the Buddha used the Shavasana. He was, after all, a Buddha. Uh, so I don't know. We know that in, in the Tibetan tradition, the sleeping lying posture is the one that's recommended if you want to fall asleep and have, and have lucid dreams. Um, so in that regard, exactly, the, you emulate exactly what the Buddha looked like, according to the ancient accounts. Um, but does the, the lying down posture among the four classic ones, does that include Shavasana? Even though I've never seen the texts explicitly state that, I would say with an enormous degree of confidence, yes. Because the texts don't say the lying down posture among sleep, sitting, standing, and so forth is the sleeping lying posture. They don't say that. It's just lying down, lying down. And the Shavasana is a formal way of lying down, which I think is strongly to be advised, because when we adopt that, then we can develop the strong association. When I go into this lying down, this is only for meditation. If I go into this lying down, this is to fall asleep, take a nap, whatever, okay? Can the lying down be done not only at the back, but also on the abdomen, front or side? Generally speaking, what I've heard is that lying face down uh, tends to make the mind duller. But I would say this, and lying, lying on the side is generally recommended. Um, Stephen LeBert did some, a nice research. Um, because he, he's read every book there is in English on dream yoga. I mean, this is his whole profession. And uh, he had heard it stated in some Tibetan texts that if you're a man, you want to practice dream yoga, and you want to fa fall asleep, and you want to recognize dreams when they happen, then if you're a man, you should fall asleep on your right side. And so your palm is under your cheek, your, your left hand rests on, your, on, your left, on the top of your left leg, your feet are pretty much together, you'll be as straight as you can be and not just fall over. And so there you are, that's for, for men on the right side. But in some, some teachers say, if you're a woman, then because of the different flow of the channels and so forth that are gender specific, women should fall asleep on the left side. Okay, so he, that's an easy thing to research. So he, he knows, I think, thousands of lucid dreamers because he's got a whole database of people he, he, uh, you know, he connects with uh, through virtual reality. And he did a study to see among adept uh, lucid dreamers because he, he knows hundreds of them. Uh, whether that turned out to be true. Whether if you're a woman, you'll have more lucid dreams if you, if you fall asleep on the left side, whereas if you're a man, you'll have more lucid dreams on the right side. And it turns out, no. Same. Right side's better. Right side's better. Yeah. So there we go. That's that for that. And now, three more theoretical ones, but I don't want to give, and especially since we have seven minutes until six, I won't give any long ones. Um, could you please elaborate in regard to the three bodies of the Buddha and its relationship to where does the mind of a Buddha reside after achieving Buddhahood and passing away? So no, I don't think I'll give a full, I'm not going to give a presentation on the Dhammakaya, Sambhogakaya, Nirmanakaya, except to say that the, the mind of the Buddha, it doesn't reside anywhere. Where does the mind of a Buddha reside after achieving Buddhahood? Um, to say anything would be silly. North Thailand? Uh, to the left, <laughs> to the right, uh, different galaxy. So to place the mind of a Buddha in space would be a categorical error. Okay, N not nothing foolish here. It's not a bad question, but it is said, and this is this is a Mahayana statement, that the enlightenment of a Buddha is non-abiding. Minepe sangye, minepe changju, minepe sangye, and that is the mind of a Buddha does not dwell in 
and I'm sure you didn't mean location, you know, it's not a silly question, but the mind of a Buddha does not dwell in nirvana. It's to say, immersed in nirvana, as is the mind of an arhat. Once an arhat passes away, that arhat is not having any taste of samsara at all. That arhat, his mind dwells, and of course he's lost his gender, dwells in nirvana, right? But the mind of a Buddha, according to the Mahayana tradition, does not dwell in nirvana in the sense of being absorbed in it, encompassed by it, nor, of course, does the mind of a Buddha dwell in samsara, that would just make him a sentient being, non-dwelling and inconceivable. Because it's said that the mind of a Buddha perceives samsara and nirvana simultaneously, which an arhat does not. Even a tenth stage Arya Bodhisattva does not. There's still a difference, a flickering back and forth between now de dealing with conventional reality, now dealing with ultimate reality. A Buddha steps over that threshold and now, phew, no distinction. Very interesting statement by Dingu Kensi Rinpoche in his commentary to the Seven Point Mind Training. He said, when you come to the end of the Bodhisattva path, stage 10, almost a Buddha, he said, and whether you're following Vajrayana, Dzogchen, what have you, but you're, you're right there on the cusp, your last moments of being a Bodhisattva before becoming a Buddha. He said, you lose all preference for achieving, you lose all preference for nirvana over samsara, for enlightenment over non-enlightenment. You lose all preference. Quite interesting. You're right on the brink of seeing the utter one taste, the perfect equanimity the evenness of samsara nirvana, the pure equality, taknyam, tape nyamba, olaso. So that's that. And the Sambhogakaya is a rarefied manifestation from the Buddha mind, and the Manakaya of many types manifest in the world where we can encounter them, even if we're not highly realized bodhisattvas. Here's a great big one, it's going to get a very short answer. Uh, what repercussions do you think there will be will, will have the, fu the future will have when His Holiness the Dalai Lama passes away in relation to the Tibetan people inside Tibet versus China with a government in exile in terms of leadership with Tibetan Buddhism around the world and Buddhism in general with his next rebirth or none and this is from uh, from Gonzalo and Ivan as was the last question uh, these are enormous questions and I'm no prophet I have no precognition or clairvoyance about what's coming I would, say every, I would say an enormous amount hinges on whether His Holiness is able to go back to Tibet in this lifetime. That there is sufficient autonomy, that there's a change of attitude, a return to sanity, frankly, out of paranoia, and, and frank, flat out, I think, psychosis. I think, the, the, I think Beijing's attitude towards the Dalai Lama is psychotic. I really do. It's completely unhinged from reality. It's about by looking at, looking at something at a snowbank and seeing a coal mine. You know, it's just it's it's crazy, and it's only to detriment everybody. There's no benefit for the Chinese people, no benefit for Beijing. There's no obviously no benefit to Tibetan. Tibetan. There's no benefit anywhere. And so, if they come to their senses and they recognize, in fact, among all the Tibetans living, they have no greater ally, no greater hope for harmony with the with the with the, with the People's Republic and a happy rec 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 reconciliation and harmony between the Han Chinese people, the Chinese government, and the Tibetan people, that their greatest ally, their greatest hope that the whole Tibet problem will go away is the Dalai Lama. And he thinks he's the major source of threat. It, it's psychotic. I, I say, I hope, I hope there's some compassion there, but it really is psychotic. Um, if they overcome that psychosis and they recognize what is true as being true, 
and that he's, he's not trying to overthrow the, 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 the regime of China, he's not trying to break apart the motherland. What he is trying is something that all decent people would re respect, and that is people can maintain their own culture, their language, their spiritual heritage, their cultural identity. Every decent person should recognize that is a perfectly reasonable thing, and that's all he's asking for. If the Chinese government recognizes that, they allow this type of internal autonomy for the Tibetan people, and the Dalai Lama is able to go back. That'll be one scenario, a very happy scenario. If he should pass away before that happens, that'll be a very different scenario, and much more difficult. And the, it'll be an, a, a, real, a real difficulty for the Chinese government. Tibetan people are not intrinsically peaceful. And 1,200 years ago, they sacked the capital of China, and they terrorized Central Asia. They were as tough as the Mongolians. They didn't have as large an empire. But Song um, Zengampo, Genghis Khan, two very tough kings, very tough, brilliant strategists, brilliant military commanders. And they just terrified everybody. And so the Tibetans are not intrinsically peaceful. Nobody is. And the younger people also, some of the younger Tibetans, they're saying, Dalai Lama, you've had your chance. You've had your chance. Forty years, peaceful reconciliation. Forty years, nonviolence. Forty years, Chinese brothers and sisters. It's not working. And there's a voice there that's getting louder and louder. And they're saying, the hell with that. Violence sometimes works. Maybe we should try it. And I hope for everybody's sake that will not take place. In accordance with the Buddhist way of life, its ethics, compassion, and wisdom, how do you perceive the relation between Dharma and the martial arts? Knowing that throughout the history of Asia, both have played a very important role, but in a way they would be opposite to each other, having that martial arts, um, blank the, in the last manifestation, could, could be violent. Yeah, they could be violent. Again, from Gonzalo and Ivan. Uh, first of all, the, the prevalence of martial arts throughout Asia is very uneven. Tibetans don't have any martial arts. They just shoot arrows at people. <laughs> you know, the Mongolians didn't have any, I don't think, martial arts. I mean, wrestling, but that's not quite a, I don't think it's really quite a martial art. I mean, maybe it is, but wrestling. That doesn't hurt anybody. I mean, you throw them to the ground, you pin them, you know. But that's the nice thing about wrestling is nobody gets, you know, nobody normally gets broken bones or, you know, bursts spleens and things like that. So it's a gentler form. Um... But the martial arts, karate, and other ones that, where you can actually kill people. Tibetans didn't have anything like that. And they were, a they were a very military people before, Tibetan, before Buddhism came in. But they had no martial arts. They never developed it. And it was nowhere practiced. I don't think in any Tibetan monastery of karate or even judo or, you know, qigong. Well, qigong is not a martial art, but um, tai chi kuan and so forth and so on. Um, they didn't have any at all. I don't think the Indians ever developed any martial arts. Lots of yoga, pranayama, but, and they kill people. They didn't have any problem killing people, but they do it with swords, a good old-fashioned way, you know? <laughs> and so it was really East Asia and Southeast Asia. There's the martial arts, and so the very short answer is our time runs out. Um, Self-defense is not a non-virtue. And if one gets, can defend oneself without mutilating the other or killing the other, that's a really nice thing, right? And so there are forms of martial arts which are designed to do that. Somebody was just telling me, oh, it was, uh, it was Sean telling me about Kunok and his being the, the national champion of, I think, the martial arts for, for Bangkok. 
And what Sean told me, it was just a, just a one-liner, but he said, when you're, doing, when you're practicing this martial arts, you must never, ever practice it with anger. And those of you, I don't really know Kunok, but my sense of it is he's not, he's not a bristling, angry, kind of grumpy kind of guy. <laughs> my sense of it is not at all. He seems so light and cheerful and so forth. And yet there he was. He, and he's not that big, so he must be really good at it. So, insofar as it is really a defensive measure, insofar as one can defend oneself without maiming another person, that's a good thing, no reason not to. It's also very good discipline. It can also be conjoined with meditation, as is done in the Zen tradition, multiple schools of Chinese Buddhism. They did have martial arts in their monasteries. Um, but there's also always, of course, the possibility that the same methods can be used, and then they are really simply for harming people. So, double-edged sword. Um, overall, I think I don't have anything more to say. <laughs> I trained it a long time ago. I trained in karate when I was a kid. This guy got beat up once, and I didn't like it. <laughs> but that was just so I wouldn't get beat up again. And I didn't, but I never needed to use karate. Just run. Hola, <laughs> so. And our time is, oh, gee, it's two minutes after six. Let's take a break, make our cooks happy by showing up on time. And... Uh, there we go. So I'll see you tomorrow morning.